Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering, and uh, today I have one of the greats in the field of uh, um, helping people come off psychiatric medications. We have Chris Page here. He's an LCSW. He's been doing uh, counseling psychotherapy for the last 30 years. And uh, he actually had his own benzodiazepine uh, injury. And uh, after he recovered from that approximately three years ago, he's been very active in helping people uh, through this process. It's a delight to have him here. He brings a wealth of knowledge. And Chris, you know, just so happy to have you here. Um, I might ask you to just kind of kick off by telling us telling us your story with benzos. You know, what, what happened to you? Great. Thank you so much. Also, it's such a privilege to be here with you and so excited to have a chance to speak yeah. again. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, my I would argue that my my experience with benzo started at birth because I was adopted. And so I had some trauma from that. And then I had some multiple traumas during childhood. And, you know, when you're growing up in the 60s, 70s and 80s, nobody's talking about trauma. Mm-hmm. And, um, so by the time I, I entered the field in the early 90s, um, you know, PTSD was just becoming a diagnosis. And um, at that point, we only really viewed it in the context of somebody being exposed to war or, you know, something horrific way outside the, you know, the regular human experience. But I think we've evolved to know that trauma is much more complex and has a variety, you know, it's really based on the individual's response to the event versus anything else. And, you know, I think just from work stress and life and the accumulation of trauma that I never really fully dealt with. I ended up on benzodiazepines in 1990, or actually in 2000, in the year 2000. And I started taking clonopin for a few years, and I noticed a couple of years into my clonopin um, use that I was starting to have some memory issues, and because my memory's always been very, very good. And so I actually went to a neurologist by 2001, and he actually said, you know, when you stop the benzos, you, this is probably the symptoms you're getting, I'd go back on the benzos. So you had no other insight besides that, but I kind of did a haphazard taper off of two milligrams of clonopin, went years without taking benzos. And then in 2013, had some real intense life stress combined with a pretty bad prostate infection. And they gave me Cipro, a fluoroquinolone antibiotic that um, unbeknownst to me actually has some neurological effects. And at the time, there was no black box warning in 2013 for fluoroquinolones, and now there is for the symptom I got, which was a neuropsychiatric symptom, where I was getting agitated and restless and, and, and having insomnia. So maybe in a way, I was already starting to experience akathisia at that point, but who, who really knows? Right mm-hmm. And um, so I started getting sick because I probably was getting tolerant to the medicine. I wasn't getting the same effect. It was actually becoming paradoxical where I was I, if I wasn't sleeping instead of the clonopin giving me restful sleep, it was actually causing me to have insomnia. Mm. I was getting sicker and sicker and sicker. My family was very scared, understandably. And they convinced me against my logic, because <laughs> when you know when you're in a state of benzo withdrawal, logic is not something very accessible. Yeah, just um, panic, pretty much. <laughs> I saw this yeah. need, you know. Yeah. And so I consented to go to a five-day medical, medically supervised detox where they took me off a milligram and a quarter of clonopin, which is the equivalent of 25 milligrams of Valium in five days. And my nervous. Let me, let me uh, ask you this. So after you got on the fluoroquinolone and you had the neuropsychiatric symptoms afterwards, 
How long was the period that you were taking clonopin to when you went to that detox? Okay, well, great question. So November was when I was taking the fluoroquinolones, and by December I was really having a neuropsychiatric problem. So it was I, I can remember the date. It was it was New Year's. It was the day before New Year's Eve. It was December thirtieth of two thousand thirteen when I called my primary and I said, "Hey, I'm having some insomnia. Can you just give me like ten point five milligram clonopin?" She gave me twenty one milligram clonopins. And I ended up taking 16 total milligrams over three and a half months. And something that I knew as a very theoretical concept of half-lives, but didn't really know the pragmatic or practical mm -hmm. application of them. The fact that I was taking clonopin for point, you know, 0.25 or 0.5 milligrams every three or four days, I thought clonopin, the issue was if you took it daily, if you spread it out, you weren't at risk. And that's not the case. And clonopin has a very odd half-life. It's 18 to 50 hours. So what that really means is there's a lot of variability, I would argue, based on the individual's metabolic you know, system. And I would, I would imagine, unfortunately, maybe I'm a slow metabolizer. So even taking those small doses over uh, you know, intermittently over a course of, you know, like I said, 16 total milligrams over three and a half months, um, I got dependent. And when mm -hmm. I got dependent, um, I thought about tapering. And then I called a doctor who gave me some very, very bad medical advice. He updosed me 500% from 0.25 to 1.25 with the, you know, with the hope that it would stabilize me. And it, it actually had the opposite effect. It made me sicker. Um, and so then that laid, led me in this really, really, really distressed state to end up on the doorsteps of this medical detox. And so you that know, was three, uh, roughly three months after you had started taking. Correct. Yeah, it was, I would say it was the end of April of 2013. So you know, I get the medicine December 30th. I start noticing the problems early March, and by the end of April, I'm so sick that I'm ending up in a medically supervised detox. <laughs> okay. Go to the detox. Um, I would argue the single worst place for anyone with benzo dependency to, to go. And I mean, physical dependency, not emotional or psychological dependency. Um, and in five days, they take me off the medicine. I go crazy. Um, I've kind of, I've always said, I, I imagine what they did to my brain is they took the red and the black and hooked me up to a car battery and mm -hmm. shocked me to the point that my nervous system was just completely dysregulated. I got severe akathisia at that point where I was pacing and pacing in the hospital. Of course, in a hospital, when you're pacing, you're going to get diagnosed with mania. You're going to get diagnosed with agitated, you know, depression. You're going to get diagnosed with other things that have no connection to what you're actually experiencing. Nobody knew that benzo withdrawal syndrome was, was a reality. And actually, nobody ever actually identified that I was akathisic at that point either. So I, I get out of the detox in five days and... Um, I get placed into a day treatment program at, that's connected to the hospital. I think I last 30 hours in there, pacing like a complete lunatic. They diagnosed me with a social phobia, which ironically, six months before, I'm getting up in front of hundreds of people on a microphone and speaking, which is the antithesis of a social phobia. And he said, they said, because you can't sit in groups. And the reality was I couldn't sit. It didn't have anything to do with groups. I couldn't sit. Mm. I, was, I was frantic. I was agitated. And I told one too many people that I was thinking about harming myself. So I ended up in a psych ward. And I ended up in a psych ward for five days. They, um, one of the things the detox did is they put me on four support drugs when they took me off. Uh, 
Let me guess. One of them, Seracool, right? You know. Well, they have yeah. they have their list. They have their yeah. list of favorites. You know, Seracool, yeah. okay. Propanol. Yeah. They love a little Vistrol, even though I don't even know what Vistrol is going to yeah. do for that that state of dysregulation. <laughs> um, so then I, you know, I end up in this psych ward. They were compassionate, but they didn't understand what I was doing or what I was experiencing. And the day I got discharged from the psych ward, they put me back in that outpatient program. I met with the outpatient psychiatrist, and he said to me, if you think you're still in benzo withdrawal, which was six days post-cessation, I recommend you go back to Florida. So I immediately called my mom and said, I'm going back to Florida, which ironically to my family looked like I was treatment resistant. I was, you know, not willing to accept I had a problem. You what, know, what was he, what was he suggesting? Was he suggesting like, get out of here? Or was he suggesting was like, like, Hey, you, you're going to need help from family. I don't know. Or just more, yeah. to, you know, you're, you're psychiatrically ill. Don't think that it's a benzo withdrawal symptom. You, you know, your symptoms are your psychiatric illness. They're not the withdrawal you know, syndrome. Uh, you know, an interesting thing to talk about with yours is is actually, yeah, that you have this kind of um, uh, compound tox toxicity, you know, because uh, um, I have heard other stories of people, you know, they call it like uh, get, getting like floxed or like flox tox or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yep. And it's the uh, fluoroquinolone toxicity that you have. And then there's also this interesting relationship between the two where, um, and this is seen clinically, if, if you have someone who's taking benzodiazepines and then you give them a fluoroquinolone, in some patients, um, the fluoroquinolone, for whatever reason, it's, it seems to dislodge the benzo and causes this they abrupt, compete. yeah, they compete and it precipitates a withdrawal and people get these enduring toxicities. And, and so now we've got you you were tolerating benzos. You went through this haphazard withdrawal. You were okay, you know, but then you have this toxicity and then you kind of have a, you know, it's, it's, it's an unusual response to clonopin. Now, while it worked in the past, now yeah. it's actually having a paradoxical effect. You know, something's changed in your nervous system. And then when it got pulled out later on, things just went haywire. So it's like you have this neurotoxicity from two different medications. That's yeah. That's yeah, because, you know, as I've studied yeah. more and I've learned so much about neurotoxicity and, and toxic encephalopathy, actually, you know, which is mm -hmm. what I diagnosed myself with that at that point. Um, you know, we can go along. It, it's kind of like the person that works in a chemical plant. They can work in a chemical plant for years and have a, be asymptomatic, but they might be getting slowly towards a threshold. And then you cross that threshold and catastrophic symptoms happen. So you mm -hmm. go from symptomatic to catastrophic so quickly, even though it might seem like a very small window because there's maybe, you know, low level injury or low level toxicity occurring that hasn't quite manifested fully yet. And I think that's yeah. what happened. And that, and that, and you know, you know, and Chris, I know you know this because you work in this space, but you know, there's two ways that people seem to get this talk, you know, the benzo injury. It's sometimes they're fine and they have an acute withdrawal and then they just go haywire. And that, and that's probably, I, I hear that a lot, but the other way is, They'll just be taking this drug, and then over time it becomes toxic. I don't know. There's there seems to be this accumulating changes going on in the brain, and they start getting what the interdose uh, interdose withdrawal tolerance withdrawal, and you know maybe it is tolerance withdrawal that you know you've the changes have gotten to a place where you're actually in withdrawal. But another thing I think it, it might just be direct toxicity. I mean there may be something that's kind of become unbalanced about the way you know you're you know, this drug is on the GABA receptor 
that now now there's some kind of imbalance with the other neurotransmitter systems and it's just it's not working anymore and you're starting to get more and more symptoms and then in the, in these people anyway they go well I guess I better come off it and they pull it away and then the and the bottom floors out and they just completely fall apart well for me just a quick aside scientifically I mean I would yeah. argue what I believe happens is is when you consistently are downregulating GABA receptors mm-hmm you know, what eventually happens is you get a massive upregulation in glutamate. And my argument argument neurochemically for what almost everybody with an iatrogenic psychiatric injury is dealing with is glutamate excitotoxicity. That that mm-hmm. you know, the, the glutamate, which we know can be neurotoxic at higher levels in the body, is causing it's getting stuck in a negative feedback loop and it's perpetuating a, an elevated state of hyper excitability. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think is is at the core physiologically of what we're experiencing. So back to back to the anecdote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back to the anecdote. Yeah. So here I am. You know, here I am in this. You know, I end up I end up coming home, and my stepmom says I can st- you can you can stay with us for one night, and I somehow manifested that into eight months. But in those eight months, you know, they're like treating me like an addict. I have to go to three to two to three AA meetings a day. You know, I'm like missing the AA meetings. You know, I can't sit still and I'm frantic. And, you know, I probably look mm-hmm. like an acute alcohol withdrawal. Um, yeah. But, you know, like a fish in a water in that environment. And, you know, because I had a brain injury, I didn't have a psycho- psychosocial issue that I needed to deal with. I mean, trust me, if AA had helped, if there was like an akathisia anonymous that helped, I would have gone from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day. Yeah. Nothing like that. So, so this creates the, the, in a sense, what I see over and over in my coaching clients and over and over in my experience, which is, you get stuck in this kind of gap in the medical world where you are sick and injured and have very severe symptoms. But unfortunately, the majority of the symptoms are mimicking symptoms. They mimic other psychiatric illnesses or psychiatric diagnoses. And so because of that, you look like an exaggerated worse version of yourself, which leads to gaslighting from medical professionals and gaslighting from your family. And so what started to happen to me was I have an amazing group of friends from college, an amazing group of friends, and they were so invested in helping me that they were willing to send me to another treatment center. Because another thing the detox did, like I said, they put me on four meds, Seroquel, Remeron, Visteril, and Gabapentin. I got off the Gabapentin and the Visteril about a week after the detox because they're just what they weren't high doses that I could get off them. But the Seroquel and the Remeron, honestly, I'm still trapped on. And it'll probably be years until I can get off of it because my nervous system is still so fragile. And I have to treat it with the kid gloves that it really deserves at this point. And I want to function. But um, so what started to happen was, you know, one thing I've learned about human nature is if people want to help but then feel helpless, they project the helplessness onto you and then they blame you for being helpless. And so I see this over and over with people, which is you don't want to get better. Um, My favorite was you're choosing this. I'm like, right. So up to the first 48 years of my life, I built a successful psychotherapy practice. I owned two music schools. I had a busy, rich social life. And I chose instead to pace 10 to 12 hours in a closed room, lose everything, because that just makes logical sense. Who wouldn't want that life? It sounds amazing, right? Nothing. I mean, and that happens in the medical profession as well right because when you go and see physicians if you don't fit neatly into a box you know all of a sudden this is uh hysteria you know essentially as 
a uh, psychological, you know, uh, you know, physical symptoms manifesting from psychological distress, which you're not sharing with them. So, you know, we have a platform yeah. problem, and we're a cluster yeah. personality disorder. You know, we have mm-hmm. a cluster personality disorder, and and so so what ends up happening then after eight months, I get basically kicked out. I end up back at my home. I'm actively suicidal. I mean, actively. I am literally spending my days walking around with a loaded handgun in my hand the whole time. Um, And to be honest with you, it's a miracle I'm alive. And with the amount of times I had a gun in my mouth and had my hand on the hammer, it should have gone off. And it didn't. And I believe spiritually one of the reasons it didn't is I'm here to help people. I'm here to help others get to the finish line that somehow I was able to get to. So... I end up then in Alaska with some people. How, how long were you in that state for where you were highly I was, suicidal? I was, actively, I was acutely suicidal for three years. And yeah. I tell people this was, you know, this is something I've written about and I will write more about is I was in an acute medical crisis where there was no help. Mm-hmm. It's the worst place I could have gone. And I actually did once in the middle of it, about eight months into it, seven months into it. Well, one of the things I used to do when I was really frantic and, and crazy was I would go sit in the parking lot of emergency rooms, which just sowed the ambivalence. I should go in. They have to be able to help me. You can't. They don't know anything. I have to go in. They're going to help me. They don't know anything. So the, I probably signed in seven or eight times and left. You know, I'd yeah. go in, guard, sign in and go, I got to get out of here. And I'd leave. Uh, yeah. So eventually I signed myself in. And well, I didn't sign myself. Oh, I signed myself in. So this is a, 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 a guide for all people. It's better to sign yourself in than have others sign you in. So if given the choice, sign yourself in. But yeah, even if it's like a choice with arm twisted, you know, like you exactly. know, you could either you could either sign in voluntary, or we can do this the hard way. Thanks, I'll sign in voluntarily. You know, yeah. yeah. So, so I. I uh, end up in the emergency room and I give the emergency room doctor and the head nurse my 15 minute story about what happened to me. I have my IV and it's not within 30 seconds of me finishing my story. The head nurse grabs my IV and I go, what are you giving me? She goes, Ativan. I'm like, Ativan? Didn't I just tell you that I'm not only deathly allergic to these medicines, but I've been injured by them? I mean, it just shows the the complete lack of detachment in so much of medicine Mm -hmm. from gains and harms with medicines they, they see all the gains and none of the harms mm-hmm. and so i end up in the psych ward for one night and this is another thing i would say i actually tweeted about this to a doctor the other day is the absolute worst place on earth to recover from any psychiatric problem is a psych ward and that's because 30 minute bed checks with a flashlight in your face the the nurses at the nursing station from two to six in the morning were singing I mean, there's just absolutely no respect, just no respect for sleep or, or, or sanity. So I sign myself out the next day and I'm just in that state where I'm frantic. Everybody in my life is turning their back on me. I end up in Alaska with some strangers who are in the psych recovery movement, but they didn't even understand how sick I was. After three months, they kick me out. I'm stranded in Anchorage, Alaska. I have absolutely no reason to live. I mean, you know, I have no friends. I have no job. I'm running out of money. I'm sicker than I've ever been in my life. I'm 6,000 miles from home. Why live? And Chris, were you were you working at all during this time? No. no. Yeah. I, I was, I had sold my businesses, so I had enough money to live about two years or so, but that wasn't going to be enough. So I ended up in a variety of situations that are... <laughs> 
someday will come out in the book. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's a miracle. When people fully know what happened to me, they're going to be just shocked that's, that I survived. But yeah. I did. That's the most important thing I did. And so I go through the next few years, you know, severely akathisic. I'm pacing 10 to 12 hours a day. A good day for me is six hours. Um, my feet are bloody because the human foot is not meant to walk that much. I did a cursory kind of projection that I think I walked between 40 and 45,000 miles in three years, just from the pacing all day. Um, so it, at about a three year mark, the, the active akathisia crosses for me. I'm, I'm not pacing, but I'm still crazy agitated, crazy, you know, cognitively impaired, but I'm not pacing. So I cross down below that threshold. I can sit, but, you know, I'm restless. I can't do anything. I'm unfunctional. So I was basically unfunctional for about five, five and a half years. About five and a half years into it, I just start getting well enough um, and start to slowly reintegrate my life. And now I can say to everybody listening, my life at on you know March 26th at 12.26 p.m. is the best it's ever been. So for those listening that are suffering, just know that for so many of us, it, it gets better and it's so worth it. So worth it. And I think it's a great story because some people would say, you know, oh, my symptoms are so bad and they've been going on for three years or something like that. I don't think I'm going to be someone who recovers. But you, you know, like you mentioned before, you were highly suicidal for three years with a gun in your mouth on several occasions. And, um, and you know, now, now life is better than ever, which I, I think is, yeah. Well, it's, it's one of the things that I've created, actually was doing yesterday, I'm doing a video, another video from a, for the Institute for Akathisia Research. And what I created was an acronym for the word hope. Mm -hmm. and, and the words, you know, the you know, the H is that we have to stay hopeful. You have to stay hopeful in this. You have, you know, and some, for some of us, when you're as sick as I was, the hope was based in one thing and one thing only faith, an undying faith that somehow my body could overcome this, that somehow if I made it from day to day to day, I would string enough days together that my nervous system would calm down that somehow I could, you know, recover from this. And then the eight, the other H is here. We had, you know, one of the things I had to learn to do to the best of my ability was stay in the present moment because I'm still going to be tapering the meds they put me on for eight years, seven years. So the whole process from the detox to me getting off the meds is going to be almost 17 years. If I'd been thinking about that every day while I was pacing, I would have given up because it would have felt unsustainable, hopeless, right? So you have to stay in the moment, not the past mm. and not tomorrow. So I kind of had a little trick that got me through, which was I'm not going to harm myself today. And mm -hmm. as long as I stuck to that belief, I could make it to the next day. There were days I got very close. You know, mm -hmm. I would argue that I was 50.1% hanging in there and 49.9% not. That it was mm -hmm. just enough that I made it, just enough. And then, oh, optimism and outlook, you know, you have to believe that other people have come before you and healed. You have to believe that, you know, by focusing on the present day, one of the biggest things that I see in so many of my coaching clients is not only the, the, the difficulty managing today, it's the catastrophic predictions. This is going to happen to me. I'm going to be five years. I'll never get off this drug. My life is over. You know, things like that. 
That's why we have to stay in the present and also try to control that outlook to the best of our ability. Remember, I'm not saying this is easy. And I'm not saying this is in any way something that's sustainable every moment. Okay, But to the best of your ability to have an outlook that you can get better. And then the P is persistence and patience. You have to be so patient sometimes. This is sometimes for some of us, it's a marathon and not a sprint. But remember, not for everyone. That's another thing we have to consider is that you know, and this is one of the places I have an issue with some of the Facebook groups is they convince people they're doomed and people recover every day from this. And it's the hanging in, the patience and the persistence, the persistence that there's no way I'm not going to do this because I only have one chance at this and I have to get through it. And then the E is the endurance that you have to have to do this. And then the final E is the ecstasy. It's the payoff. It's the feeling that I can sit in a chair now and talk to somebody as educated and intelligent as you and be educated and intelligent and have my brain slow enough and sit and lie in bed and lie on the couch. I'm so grateful for the small things in life, let alone the big things in life. So the ecstasy is the payoff because when you feel as horrible as you felt and then you don't, it's the most powerfully wonderful feeling I can, I can convey to anybody out there. I've, I've heard that so many times recently. I had uh, Mark Keller, uh, who was someone else who had a benzo injury. I, I spoke with him maybe a month ago, and he was just telling, you know, sharing about how, I guess, you know, re recovering from this had just given him a whole new outlook on life. And uh, almost everyone who gets through this says that the their level of appreciation for just the little things in, in life is just through the roof. It's like they, they've had this kind of spiritual uh transcendence you know because yeah. when you've seen the devil nothing else scares you. and it's it's you know what like i'm writing a ted talk right now on how i survived it and one of the basis of the ted talk is stoicism is uh and based on a couple different people one being victor frankel who survived you know a nazi concentration camp and one, um, a guy named Admiral Stockdale, who we've all, we all know John McCain, who was the senator who was in the Hanoi Hilton in Vietnam for three years. Well, Admiral Stockdale was in the Hanoi Hilton for seven years. He was the longest standing, you know, prisoner who survived. And they asked him how he did it, because he was tortured multiple times in those seven years. And he said, there was dual focus. And I, and I, in, in a weird way, I, this is how I survived it. And the dual focus is I never, ever let my eye off the prize that I would get through this somehow, that I could do this somehow. That doesn't mean that there were moments all the time that I doubted it, or I was scared, or I was overwhelmed, or I didn't think I could do it. But I somehow tried to maintain this, this, this laser focus that I could get through this and survive this and then became the daily management of how I do it. And so it was like I said, I won't hurt myself today. It was, you know, as I'm pacing, five, four, three, two, one, one, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one, counting the steps in my mind and counting the steps in a positive way, one, two, three, four, five, envisioning that each step is getting me somehow closer to where I'm going to feel better, even though for years it didn't. But it's just this philosophical concept that turning the suffering and the agony that I'm experiencing into some way to conceptualize the healing that I hope and believe is coming. 
And that to me is the core of it is how to manage the moment to moment, but never letting go of the eye on the prize that I will get better. I'm going to ask you more about that. I just, I, I need to follow up on a couple of threads, which, which you brought up during your story. And then we're going to turn to how you help your, your coaching clients on a day to day. But the first one is you had mentioned um, meaning during your story. You said that you, it was, it was something that allowed you to kind of get through this knowing that one day I would be able to help others do this in a similar way. That's also a similar theme that I've heard from a lot of people, you know, finding meaning, whether it's like, I want to get through this so I can care for my husband as he, you know, gets into older age. He is caring for me now. I need to be there for him later on. You know, I want to help people and, you know, whether it's in coaching or something else. Did you always have that meaning or was that something that kind of grew over time? And where, where did that come from? It grew dramatically. Yeah from within as the journey unfolded. Another thing that I used that was so powerful, I try to get my clients to use is future-oriented fantasies. Now, don't, it's not like I'm lying on the couch fantasizing. This is literally in the recesses of my mind, somehow keeping me hanging in there. And those four fantasies were, one, to create a TED Talk about this. Two, to create a research institute about this. I've done that. Three was to play live music one time again in my life. I just got to do that January 26th at my first fundraiser for the Institute. And the fourth one was to find a woman that I knew was out there somewhere that if I could survive, I'd find. And I found her. She was in Kansas City. And I will hopefully be spending the rest of my life with her. So, you know, these are the things, you know, I, it's almost like like, the, like kind of the rabbit they use with, with dog racing. You know, you're chasing, you never catch it, but eventually you do. You know, so it's the chasing of this thing that may think, you know, feel mythical or, or unattainable, but it's the faith that somehow I can do this. It's the faith that others have come before me. It's the faith that this is my only shot and I have to take advantage of it, even if I'm suffering like no one should ever suffer. <laughs> Chris, what what do you think about the role of community? I I, I I did notice that community or anything like that wasn't wasn't in the hope um, ac- acronym, but I wanted to get your thoughts on that because I know um, I guess um, you know, I mean a lot of people they you know they they they're in groups they're talking to other people that have similar problems and they kind of bind together in these packs that that allow people to get through. What what do you think about like what I, how did community help you, I guess, in your journey? Because it sounded like it was hit or miss. Like sometimes they yeah, kind I of think, threw you out and sometimes they make you panic. But for some people it helps. Yeah. I mean I think that at least from my perspective as a coach and a survivor, um, the communities that you know, especially the Facebook communities is a double edged sword. Mm-hmm. That that there's some good, but there's a lot of fear-mongering and a lot of symptom one-downing. And I think another thing that I've learned on this journey that makes the community difficult is that everybody in the community thinks they're the same, right? Because you're injured. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is there's a wide range of disability. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, if you can do things, you're not as disabled as I was. Okay. And ironically, I hear people in the community say, well, I had to work, Chris. And I'm like, so you're gaslighting me then. You're saying that I was too weak to work or mm-hmm. I had the mindset to work, which is kind of disgusting in my opinion, you know, because the reality is, is I did everything in my power to survive. I could not work. I mean, when you're pacing 12 hours a day screaming that you want to kill yourself, you're not really an effective therapist at that point. Mm-hmm. And, 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> not really effective. And, yeah. and, and I think, you know, what I found the best benefit of the community for me was to find individuals in the community that then I could have a separate relationship outside of the community that they were the ones that, you know, we bonded and had support. Like Nicole Lamberson is, is a perfect example of that. You know, Nicole is, 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 I consider her to be my sister in many ways, because she was one of the two people that carried me through this whole thing. Because I think what happens in the withdrawal communities, because I, because to be honest with you, I clean up the mess all week long, is convincing people they're doomed, convincing people they'll never get better, convincing people that, oh, the medicine you're taking is it's neurotoxic, you'll never recover. And this is kind of how the community's treated me with my medicine, which is I'm still taking Seroquel and Rimrock. I was pacing 14 hours a day on Seroquel and Rimrock. So they'll say you're better only because of the Seroquel and Rimuron. But when I was pacing four hour, 14 hours a day, they said, well, the Seroquel and Rimuron are causing this. So which one is it? Are they good? Or are they bad? I can't figure it out. Because the reality is, is what happened for me is my nervous system calmed down. That's the only thing that happened. Mm -hmm. you know, I held the meds for five years and allowed my nervous system to calm down. So I think the community, I think the community, one of the best parts of the community is the information you can find. A lot of people, first, when they come to the community, they learn what they're experiencing. That to me has a lot of value. The problem I see though is, and I mean this in the most loving way, but there are some people in the community, I believe their entire identity is based around withdrawal or the injury. Mm -hmm. So they have absolutely no motivation to get better. And I don't mean that in a physical sense, but in a sense of telling one, anyone else they're better, because if they got better, then they wouldn't have the same support they have now. And mm -hmm. I fear we see some identification with the symptom that then causes perpetuity, not in their symptoms, but in their identity. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Where it's, um, well, I guess the, the way it makes sense to me is if, if there's nothing else in your life that you, you want to pursue apart from kind of being there, I mean, you're going to be stuck. But um, also and getting out of, you know, I mean, I mean, the goal should be leaving the community. I mean, you can bring your friends that you made from the community right. with you into your life, but eventually you want to. Um, you want to write uh, a you Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I mean, you want to go and do other things in life. I mean, you want to uh, because it like the, the more you're engaged with things outside of the withdrawal community, in a way, it's like a pleasant distraction as well. You know, if you're lucky enough to be able to do things and function at that level where you can go to birthday parties and things like that and be involved in your siblings' families and and, and care for others, then, I mean, that's really ideal. Yeah. yeah. And I also think there are different community groups. I mean, the Benzer Warrior community is an excellent community. They've got great moderators. It's boundary. I think some of the other groups don't have enough moderation or there's not enough boundaries, and it seems kind of chaotic at times. And the last thing any of us needs when we're in this condition is chaos. Yeah, yeah, that that that's true. I mean, there's a, there's a tendency, I guess, for for some of the communities, especially the Facebook groups, um, you know, that are lacking moder uh, moderators. I mean, they, they end up being this kind of outlet where people at the worst moment of their day or their week, they come on and they're just like, I'm, I'm ready to end things. And so you get all these suicidal comments on there as well. Very and that's, place. Yeah. And it, it, so it can be pretty dark. It's a reflection of the fear. I get that. And again, I'm not yeah. anybody, but I just see things pattern wise that trouble me at times because I only have one goal. Anybody that knows me know this is the truth. I have one goal, and that's why I made the acronym, is to give people hope. Yep, yep, yeah. 
optimism, you know, because I know how bad it is. But if I stay with you where how bad it is, I can't help pull you to the finish line. And that's my whole goal is to say, let me support you in a way that I can help you hang in there so you can get better. And and that's it. So, so let, let's talk about that. I, I feel like I've already gotten your treatment philosophy through hope, uh, but maybe you could tell us about the practicalities of that when you're, when you're working with people. How, how do you get people to... Um, um, I guess, d- distract themselves when they're in such significant discomfort? You know, what, what are your strategies? It's hard. You know, I, I think that, you know, the first thing I tell every single person is you're doing the best you can. Because that's such a different message than everybody else has been telling them at that point, I would imagine. But the reality yeah. is for any of us that are injured, we're doing the best we can. And you know, to me, it, it really depends on the severity. You know, there are people that can distract, you know, they can take a walk outside or they can go for a bike ride and they're still feeling symptomatic, but they have some options. Whereas some people, it's really just, you know, for me, it was, all right, I could tolerate showers. I know a lot of people can't, you know, I take a 15 minute shower and come out. And then I, you know, I mean, I was just pacing the whole time. But, I mean, and even when I was in the shower, I remember being at my stepmom's and I'd be in the shower going, I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to kill myself. And I hear my stepmom, I can hear you. Stop saying that. And because I couldn't control what I was saying. And, you know, I think that anything, you know, watching videos, watching videos that you're producing, you know, that was one of the things, like when I first was going through that, there was so little content on the internet of people that could validate your experience or could empathize with your experience. There's so much more now. And I think I would also say to any listener that's suffering, things are changing. You know, there's I'm finding more and more widespread, just general knowledge in the public of the risks of medicines, of the risks of, um, you know, that there are potential horrible side effects from psychiatric medicine. And, you know, so I would, you know, I think there's some good video programming. That's another thing that I'm going to keep creating is more video programming. I'm going to be doing a walking meditation soon for people with akathisia. Not that the meditation per se is going to lower their symptoms, but I want to give something to somebody, to, to people that they can at least listen to that will hopefully push them towards, you know, hanging in there and that hope. I think, um, you know, it, it, as I started to heal, you know, distractions would be, you know, I could start watching TV some again. You know, I was the ironic thing is before I got injured, I didn't even have internet at home. And then I became like literally obsessed with this thing. You know, this yeah, doom, doom scrolling through. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, never, I, yeah. I think yeah. I sat in the parking lot of an AA yeah. meeting and read 70 pages of the other medications site on Benzo Buddies. Yeah. <laughs> Just, I mean, and I think I've joked in other interviews before too that I found the end of the internet. You know, I, I found everything that was to be learned about what I was experiencing. Um, you know, I think having a buddy, you know, like I did with this woman, Marsha, and then with Nicole, having a, 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 you know, a healing buddy, hopefully maybe that's a little help, you know, further along the journey than you are to have as, as a connection. I think that's a really important part of this. I think that's one of the benefits of the group is you go into the group and then you make relationships with a couple specific people and then you extricate yourself from the group, but still maintain those relationships and get the support you really need. 
you know, that's kind of a model I I think is an effective model for people to recover with. That's like um, that's like having a like a sponsor in AA, you know, in a way. Sponsor in the sense that you know they can model yeah. that it's possible, you know, because I think that's mm-hmm. like I said before, you know, when you're as sick as I was and other people are, you have no evidence that you're getting better. And so you have to trust that other, you know, that's what a lot of my clients say to me. They'll say, are you sure? I trust you, but are you sure? And I'm like, I'm, you know, my anecdotal experience of doing this for years now has proven to me that if people hang in there, see even some of the sickest people I've ever seen, they mm-hmm. stabilize, they start to stabilize. Their nervous system starts to settle down. And mm-hmm. this kind of gets us to the, the single most important thing that people want to know. Will I fully heal? Okay. So to me, that's a a little more of a nuanced answer because I'm 57 years old. Does fully heal mean that my torn ACL in my 20s is better? Does it mean that the wear and tear of the last 57 years isn't gonna is gonna go away? No, I will never go back to 16 again. Okay. Do I still have lingering symptoms? Yes. Do they interfere in my life? No. I think the most realistic way to look at this is, yes, you might have some residual stuff. Some people, if they're severely injured, severely injured, okay? But that residual stuff will be meaningless. The same way that after I tore my ACL, I couldn't play basketball again. Did that mean I was going to saw my leg off? Did that mean I was going to end my life because my failed basketball career? You know, no, you live with the limitation, but it's not even a limitation, you know? And for me, it's just been, yes, I still have symptoms at times and I have to be cautious at times, but I fly. I went on a cruise a month ago. Like I said, I played live music in a band. I mean, what exactly am I missing in my life that these symptoms are preventing me from? Nothing. I, I think it's, I think your outlook is just, it, it, it really is one that is healthy and, and, and needs to be, um, um, I, uh, what am I trying to say? You know, an outlook that you want to nourish because not, not just with, um, injuries, but another thing that I see with this whole, you know, will I ever get better is with PTSD. You know, it's people who go through sexual trauma. Um, and for those of you who don't know sexual trauma, I mean, one of the main things that happens after that is your world becomes smaller and you often become a lot more wary of people. You might have been very outgoing and trusting, but now everything seems suspicious and, and people will share, you know, will I ever get better? Will I get to be me? You know, will I have that kind of carefreeness that I used to have? And I mean, with trauma, I mean, it's it's just like you explained. I mean, what I see over time is really, you know, pe- pe- you are changed uh, by that experience, and you, you go same. through it, yeah, and and your and your life is different. But once you get through it and you learn to deal with it and you recognize what's going on, it doesn't impact your life. But it's almost not healthy to say. I want to be this person who I was before. I want to be like that because you're not going to be like that. It's almost like you need to learn um, how, how you're going to deal with the things that you have currently. And that's actually the road to healing. And that sounds very similar to what you're describing. And I think with a healthy dose, also you asked about, you know, what other things can people do is radical acceptance, you know, radical mm-hmm. acceptance. What radical acceptance means is I'm not happy that this is happening. I'm not like, you know, in a sense, accepting that it's okay. I'm just accepting that it is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that 
you know, if stopping my feet and walking and smacking walls and yelling and raging would have solved the problem, I would have healed quickly. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, but at some point, you know, I've come up with another term, I think, to describe it, which is I had to abnormalize the normal, meaning that I made abnormal normal, meaning that, oh, okay, another day where I feel awful and I'm pacing and I'm frantic and I'm agitated. This is normal. This is my new normal right now. So I took an abnormal situation and made it normalized in the sense that I wasn't fighting the concept of what I'm experiencing. I was just fighting the symptoms moment to moment to get through the day. Mm. And I that, you know, I think it, it, it's kind of the example of a rip current. You know, what's the strategy if you get stuck in a rip current is relax and you float to the surface. If you fight the rip current, you die. Yeah, Chris, what I want from you eventually is like, I don't know, like a 10 part series of all of these these things that you do with people, because I mean, that, that's, that's another one like the, um, which I think is just, you know, your experience could really bring to life, but what, you know, what happens because, you know, when your brain is malfunctioning and it's misfiring, I mean, the catastrophic thoughts are like the most common thing that you see with the benzo injury. Yeah. And it's like, you need that distance, you know, just like you said with the rip current, like you never tell people to engage rationally with the catastrophic thinking, like, I'm going to die. This is never going to get better. It's like you almost redirect them. My brain is malfunctioning. Like I'm having catastrophic thoughts. This is a symptom. Exactly. I say them things like, of course you're thinking that because the part of your brain that's responsible for calming you down is not working. Yeah. Yeah. Thoughts. These aren't, this is another insidious part of the process that I think causes a lot of self doubt for people. Mm -hmm. A lot of people that are iatrogenically injured become distorted, worse versions of themselves. Mm-hmm. So their family saying, "You've all, I mean, this is what my family said to me. You've always been anxious." And ironically, talk about a setup. When I used to, oh study, I used to study in college. I used to pace because when I would walk, it would calm me down, and I could talk out loud while I was studying. And so even my college friends said, "You guys, you used to always pace." I'm like, "Yeah, but I could ch- choose not to," you know. That's not the case right now. And I Mm -hmm. think, you know, I think that like another analogy I use for healing for people is a feather. And this is my next video after I finish the hope video is the idea that a feather goes like this. It catches updrafts and our symptoms catch updrafts. But over time, the feather slowly goes down to the earth and it's Mm -hmm. the tolerance of the updrafts that determines the person's ability, I think, in part to get through it. Because a lot of times when people get updrafts, they'll take another med or they'll rapidly taper a med or they'll start adding supplements because they're like, oh my God, I'm getting worse. I'm getting worse. I can't, you know, I have to do something. I have to intervene in some ways. And oftentimes it makes them catastrophically worse. So another thing for me that I teach people is the feather, even though I had a client lovingly say to me, F your feather the other day. (laughs) Yeah. Give me the oxy, you know? Yeah. (laughs) But yeah. You get just think about a feather it's going to catch up drafts and i think yeah. a lot it's like i don't like the waves and windows idea okay people speak about waves and windows as if they're discrete entities okay they're not they are just a theoretical concept that explains the forward backward motion of this process i think a more accurate description is this is that we're always slowly healing and maybe for me in those three years i wasn't i was stuck in that you know that same pattern Mm-hmm. 
But I tolerated the updrafts somehow. And then eventually my nervous system, like the feather, landed gently on the ground. And it's the tolerance of those that is so essential to people surviving this. I think um, I think you have a lot to offer. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm mindful of our time because I want to talk about the Akathisia Institute, but I'm going to have to chat with you offline about maybe doing like a, a, a kind of a, 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 a mini series on all of the different things that, I would love that. Yeah, that you do, because I, I think that. that's great. Um, we, so, we, so t- yeah. Oh, a, a quick funny thing. My friends used to always call me Mr. Yeah. Analogy. So it's, I mean, yeah. I use those analogies now for good. Yeah. I mean, the feather one was beautiful, Chris. I mean, gently landing on the ground at the end. I mean, that's what we want. How, how, yeah. how nice is that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's where the ecstasy comes in again. I mean, my life is full of ecstasy. I mean, I'm, there's so many moments where I'm like, am I at a rock concert like right now? Yes, I did it. You know, there's so many moments where I give myself the well done. You did this and you're mm-hmm. reaping the rewards of it. And that's all I want for every single person that I encounter on this journey is I want to give them the hope that they can have what I have. Yeah. I mean, Chris, it, it practically oozes uh, out of you with your coaching and what you're doing with the Akathisia Institute that you do not want people suffering from this. And I think that's just, I think anyone that works in this space and works with people going through this suffering, it, it, you know, just like you, it becomes clear very early on that you want to help because it's just, I mean, it's like you said, you saw the devil and that, and that's what I see when I work with these patients. I mean, it is the worst. The worst. Um, And in the the paper I wrote on akathisia, I I have a sentence in there that I basically say, I would argue that it's the single most difficult medical condition for somebody to survive. Mm -hmm. And and so real quick, let me just give you a five minute synopsis on the Institute. Please. Yep. So first off, go to www.akathisiainstitute.org. We have a YouTube channel also. We will be creating much more content soon. Um, our goals are to create more content for, for viewers. Like I said, I'm going to do a, a, a walking meditation. I'm going to do other things that I'm speaking directly to surf sufferers. But my ultimate goal is I found some research that, um, like, first off, I think akathisia is mislabeled as an extraparitimal symptom, okay? Because most extraparitimal symptoms are, you know, tardive dyskinesia and dystonia and, and tremor and Parkinsonias. Akathisia, the distress causes the movement. And all the other EPS, the movement causes the distress. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're different. And I think akathisia is much more of what I would call a sensory motor syndrome. With It's an agitated sensory motor syndrome. And so I'm going to be writing on that. And then what I ultimately want to do is because I believe restless leg syndrome and this thing we call inner akathisia, that's not really full akathisia, but it's the prodromal phase of akathisia. It's the pre-akathisia before the pacing starts. And then full-blown akathisia are on a continual. And I found Chris, Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you, I've heard this before and I want your perspective on it, that, yeah, the thing that is driving the need to pace is that there's something within the muscles that feels like uncomfortable that is partially relieved by motion. And that's why people stay in right. motion because if you stay still, it kind of builds up and becomes very uncomfortable. That's um, what, that's a, yeah. a, I look at it like, like, yeah. and Nicole and I spoke about this. And she, when I told her this term, yeah. she, that's it. 
like I think one of the best descriptions I've heard of akathisia is spinal excitability. Mm-hmm. It's like your spine is vibrating with electricity and it emanates to your body. And if you try to hold it in by sitting, you, you, you start moving. You have to you have to move because your spine is literally plugged into mm-hmm. an electron. Yeah. And and it's one of the things I talk about in, in my paper is is you know, one of the big questions in the akathisia research community is is the movement controllable and there are varying degrees of people you know severity that people have with akathisia some people have much more control over the movement than others and for me i would have moments where i could and then but it was unpredictable that was the worst part about it is you know i might have an hour where i didn't have to pace and i might have felt a little less restless but then the next four hours i'd be way up again so there was no predictability to it so i think what it is really is and this is something I write in my paper too, is the movement doesn't give relief in the sense that it gets rid of the restlessness. It just makes you so you can, I don't even know how to describe it. It, 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 You're you're compelled to do it, but not in a compulsive way. You know, you're compelled to do it. Like one of the things- Oh yeah, that that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, so much in your body is saying, you need to move, you need to move, you need to move. You could control that and say, I'm just going to stay still, but then you're kind of like tortured by this. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I think that like a perfect example for me was Mm -hmm. like, I got prostate cancer in the middle of this too. So I've, Mm. I've I've had quite a journey and one of the worst parts, not one of the worst parts, but I have little memories and they tried to do an MRI on me. (laughs) Oh no. four, Four seconds after I entered Everybody in the Suncoast Imaging Center got to hear me going. But last week I had an obstructive esophagus with some food and I went to the ER and I was able to handle a CAT scan. A CAT scan is a baby MRI, but it still Mm -hmm. was being in a tube and and I was able Mm -hmm. to handle it. But as I joked to Nicole afterwards, it still took every GABA receptor I had (laughs) able to sit there. But I think that so for the instance, so what I want to do is there's some really good new research that a group of, of, of people at the NIH have done on restless leg. And they're using a medication that I want to study for akathisia because it seems to reduce the subjective part of, of restless legs, the restlessness, the dysphoria, the discomfort. And if we could reduce that in somebody with akathisia, then they would be able to manage the condition better. And I would look at it like a bridge to get them more regulated again, to get their nervous system more regulated, because the medicine that I'm researching doesn't seem to have the same blood brain barrier crossing issues that we see with so many other medicines that you don't want to be penetrating when you're in a dysregulated nervous system state. And so that's my real focus. My real focus is to be able to do real research because there's so little research on akathisia. Mm -hmm. Ironically, in the akathisia research, I've probably read over 100 articles easily. The primary consequence of akathisia in psychiatry or neurology is medication noncompliance, with a distant second being suicide. I think we need to invert those. <laughs> it's the number one problem with akathisia is suicide. It's not medication compliance. And you know, if, yeah, well, especially you know, when the medications actually caused caused it in the first place, and then you you're know, worried why someone doesn't want to comply with taking it. You know, it's like well, that's the other thing, kind of with akathisia. Back to the movement is that. I imagine, you know, the visual I've always used is that I'd wake up at 4.30 in the morning, somebody would pour a gallon of gasoline on me and light me on fire. 
and I looked like somebody that was engulfed in flames. I was frantic. I wasn't making, you know, they, they always talk, call it purposeless, you know, uh, movement. If you saw me as lit on fire, it actually would seem purposeful. Yeah. You know, it would yeah. seem very purposeful. And, you know, if you, I think that's the missing piece in part also that we need to help doctors understand is that the movement, like to me, akathisia is an expressive symptom. It expresses the degree of iatrogenic injury, the same way a fever expresses the degree of a you know of, of an infection. Okay, so the worse the akathisia, the worse the injury. Okay, mm -hmm. and it expresses it. And there's another thing we need to understand in the community is akathisia doesn't cause anything except suicide. It doesn't cause inner vibrations and all these. There's a host of iatrogenic symptoms. The word we need to be using much more instead of akathisia, at least in the communities, is iatrogenesis. We all have an iatrogenic injury. Only a some small subset of us actually have full-blown akathisia. But that doesn't mean you're not suffering. You're still suffering as bad as probably I was in certain ways. There's no doubt. But you just don't have the same condition as it manifested. You know, so like, we can, you know, we can all get injured in a way and it manifests differently. I think that's a good point because I would say maybe 20% of the people that I see at the moment have akathisia where they're actually driven to move. But then I have a lot of people with benzo injuries who are more tormented by the catastrophic thoughts and yeah. the um, the pain syndromes um, and, and, and things like that. So, you know, going back to your previous comment about how different this can be for people, I mean, there's a huge spectrum of ways, um, I guess, neurological injury can manifest in symptoms. And as I said, the insidious part is the way it manifests is often a mimicking symptom of the original condition you were treated for. And that's why mm -hmm. it's so, so, you know, like one of the things I speak so much about that doctors need to get so much better about is causation, which is, you know, you know, I was normal and I took a medicine and all of a sudden I was abnormal. What's so hard to figure out? You know, it wasn't like there was any other magical variables going on. And mm -hmm. you know, if we would just, you know, there's, there seems to have been much more of a push in psychiatry. You tell me if this has in any way been your experience that at least with neuroleptics, we need to consider akathisia. But every psych drug can cause akathisia just, a, just about. Mm -hmm. And um, so anytime we initiate a medicine, doctors need to be looking for akathisia, you know, and they need to be educating patients. You know, if you, get, if, you, if you start to notice you're feeling restless, you start to notice you're feeling agitated, you start to notice you're having these visceral experiences of terror. Now, here's what's important. Terror, I think, is a component of akathisia, but terror alone is not akathisia. It's terror. Mm -hmm. and thing is we have to differentially diagnose things so the difference between akathisia and agitation and restlessness is the movement if you don't have the movement and trust me you can be as agitated as, as you can possibly stand and not have the movement doesn't mean you have akathisia but it doesn't mean you're not suffering that's the thing yeah, and chris just to comment on you know what's happening in the medical community you know it's it's a little bit like the analogy if um uh you know, if, if if all you have is a hammer, everyone, you know, everything looks, everything, you know, looks like a nail. And when you look at psychiatry, you know, in the DSM, in, in no place in there is there really solid description of akathisia caused by psychiatric medication. So one, it's not things people are trained about. And then the next thing is, even when it eventually does make it into drug labels, for instance, the the label for benzodiazepines at the moment is is okay. It's a lot better than it, than what it was before, but it, it describes things better. And then 
we were talking about the label for the fluoroquinolone toxicity, which, you know, is actually, I think it's a black box now, yeah. or maybe it's just a, yeah, yeah. But the problem is penetrance to the medical community because once once a government regulator recognizes their risk, they have a lot of options. You know, what do you need for risk mitigation? And at least for those two, they they pretty much, I think they probably put something on the FDA website and updated the labels. And this could go the whole way to, we are going to send letters to the American Psychiatry, so the American Association of Family Physicians, of OBGYN, of psychiatrists, and we're going to make sure that they send a letter saying this is a new risk for every drug to all the doctors. And um, they've decided not to do that. You know, they 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 use that with discretion. So you might even have these things described in the labels, which we do now for some of them, um, which have no penetrance. You know, that pe- people aren't aware of them. You know, they're, they're, doctors are not routinely looking at labels. It was something I was not trained to do. I learned it at the FDA. My wife yeah. was not trained to do it. And she did her first two years at Mount Sinai and even different colleagues that I speak to, you know, they're not trained to look at um, drug side effect labels. Um, and so, yeah, these things can be recognized, but whether people are going to be aware of them, I'd, I'd say it's highly unlikely. Um, so, and, and that's... We have an uphill slog for sure, but it's so worth it, you know, and I think yeah. that like, you know. But but the, the other point I wanted to make, and that's why the Akathisia Institute, places like the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices, BIC, these organizations, these nonprofits, they fill that role because because they know there's not communication going from FDA or drug companies to providers. And so they're doing a public service by raising awareness about these things, trying to provide education and, and get it out there. And that there's something really wrong about that, that it needs to be these kind of grassroots, like community-led initiatives to it's, it's inform sad. people on the risks. It's sad because I yeah. think at the core of it, we have so many people suffering that if we could get more information out, we could avert a lot of the suffering. Because as it stands right now, for benzo withdrawal syndrome and agathisia and iatrogenic injuries, the best course of treatment is prevention. Mm-hmm. The best course of treatment is to not let it happen. And yeah. And, you know, that's kind of where we are. Yeah. Chris, we we, uh, <laughs> I, we, we got to wrap soon. So any, any final thoughts before we wrap? Just again, to everybody listening, you know, if you're a professional, I would kindly ask you to trust your patient. Trust their self-report. Um, they have no motivation to lie about what they're experiencing in terms of being injured or sick. And for those suffering, I would ask you to hang in there. Just believe with every fiber somewhere deep inside of you. It just has to be a faint voice sometimes that you can get through this, that there's a life worth living on the other side, and that many others have come before you to blaze a trail that you will walk off. Mm-hmm. Great, great. I've already decided we're having you back on pretty soon yeah. to, to, to talk Excellent. about other things. So comments in the chat, please, please. You know, if you have questions for Chris um, about anything that he does, please put it in the chat below and then and when also, I get back with him. I, I have a website, Chris Page, and it's P-A-I-G-E-L-C-S-W.com. So if you want to get in touch with me for any coaching or, or just general stuff, please feel to reach out through the yes. website. Yeah, totally. Okay. Well, great. Chris, so great to have you. We'll talk again soon, okay? Excellent. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wit During Psychiatry 
on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from doctors Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at witduringpsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.